0: Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Tyler Felgenauer, Research Director at the Duke Center on Risk, and a Senior Research Scientist with the Modeling Environmental Risks and Decisions Group at Duke University. A big chunk of Tyler's current work involves investigating how to compare the risks and possible benefits of solar geoengineering with the risks of climate change in future scenarios. And he's worked closely with researchers here at RFF on that topic. So today, Tyler and I are going to be talking about a new set of papers recently released under the auspices of RFF's Solar Geoengineering Project. And these papers were commissioned and funded by the project team and are designed to really expand the knowledge base around a range of social science issues connected to solar geoengineering. Stay with us. Hi, Tyler. It's great to talk with you today.
1: Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, I have known you for a couple of years now, but I'm still very excited to hear the answer to my opening get to know you question all the same. So yeah, why don't you tell our listeners just a bit about your background and how you came to work on on risk issues?
1: Yeah, so uh, climate change has been a, a long time interest of mine, but it but um, actually started out in my career working out on a completely different topic, international security and, and uh, international political development issues. Both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, when 9/11 happened, I had kind of the opposite reaction of many people. Many people, when 9/11 happened, moved into the security field, and and I actually decided to uh, take the opportunity to, to change my career and work more on, on environmental security and then primarily climate change issues. When I took, did my graduate work at at uh, University of North Carolina, I was uh, looking primarily at, at uh, from a policy perspective how a policymaker might might. Um, approach climate change from a risk management perspective, how they might allocate resources to lowering our emissions as one way to reduce risk versus um, spending money on adaptation as another way to reduce risk. And uh, I'd always had in the back of my mind this awareness of this third new set of technologies. It was very interesting and also a a little bit scary called geoengineering. And it made sense to start to incorporate geoengineering into this overall policy mix so I started looking at that uh, after my graduate work when I was at the EPA, and now I'm happily here at, at Duke, here with the uh, the Duke Center on Risk. Hmm.
0: Fantastic. Well, that was a very concise and comprehensive lead-in to our discussion around solar geoengineering, and um, yeah, you know, this question of kind of comparative risks, possible benefits when you think about solar geoengineering versus the risks of climate change. But before we before we get into the Deep on the risk side, I, I wonder if you can remind our listeners what solar geoengineering means. I know there are a number of terms that get tossed around that have similar meaning. Um, and maybe just what some of those possible risks and benefits are.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's known by a number of terms. Uh, geoengineering in general it's also known as climate intervention, solar radiation uh, management. Uh, I guess I'll be using the term solar radiation modification here today, uh, SRM. And it's really an umbrella term for a family of approaches that, that uh, would use different methods to reflect a small portion of incoming sunlight from the Earth in order to slow the warming that we're experiencing now or even cool the Earth. Um, and so the, the, the most studied method, uh, it, none of these have been tried yet, but the most studied would, is called stratospheric aerosol injection. Uh, which would involve a fleet of planes flying to the stratosphere, about twice as high as a modern commercial jet, going to the stratosphere, regularly dumping loads of sulfates, highly reflective particles into the stratosphere, which would spread throughout the the world and and reflect a slight amount of of incoming sunlight and help cool the Earth. The idea is mimicking the... uh, naturally occurring volcanoes, such as the um, eruption of Mount Pinotubo in 1991, which which also emitted a lar- large amount of sulfates to the stratosphere and cooled the earth for about a year. So that's the most studied approach. Other approaches include uh, something called marine cloud brightening, which would involve um, encouraging the, the formation of low-line, large marine clouds um, to reflect sunlight. Um, and there are other approaches that are being explored as uh, anything to do with what's called land or sea-based albedo modification, basically increasing the reflectivity of surfaces. And then in the future, we might even think of more science fiction-oriented approaches uh, based in space. Um, So from a risk trade-off perspective, um, I could just briefly go into the the possible risks and benefits of of, uh, of SAI, in particular, stratospheric aerosol injection. I approach it from a policy perspective, where the where we're trying to reduce the risks of climate change. That's the only reason we're talking about um, uh, air, stratospheric aerosol injection. Again, we all know this those risks: the droughts, forest fires, heat waves, stronger hurricanes, increased sea level rise. Um, the 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 potential benefits of of SRM uh, would be profound in this area. It, could, it would come from cooling. Where using this um, this method to slightly reflect some of the sunlight um, coming in could have profound benefits um, in terms of uh, alleviating a lot of those risks, um, alleviating uh, extreme temperature uh, events, uh, heat waves, alleviating extreme precipitation events, um, slowing the melting of ice on on land, and also slowing uh, sea level rise. So those benefits are well known, and they, they would they would come in the form of, of a reduced um, increase in temperature. There could also be some co-benefits of SRM, which are actually too small to be considered, but just for um, reasons of being comprehensive, we look at those as well. On, on the flip side are the other risks. Um, so SRM is 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 risky, and it's never been tried before. Um, and the primary risk is that even though we could, we're fairly confident that hypothetical geoengineering deployment could, could slow or slow temperature rise or even cool the planet, um, it, it doesn't uh, act so uniformly in terms of precipitation effects. So while temperature globally could could fall and and those benefits would be realized, precipitation outf- um, outcomes could be different for different regions of the world, and some of those could be damaging. Um, so that's the primary climatic risk. Uh, and there's another set of risks that we also look at, which we call the countervailing risks, which are less Related to climate change, and more, um, we might think of these as side effects. So, first set of side effects would be biophysical. Um, SRM, as as uh, in the form of stratospheric aerosol injection, um, might result in increased acid deposition in pristine areas of the world, um, because uh, because you're um, emitting all these particles in the stratosphere, which spread globally. Uh, it could uh, slow our, the recovery of the ozone that we're trying to have recover. Um, and it could also have, result in light diffusion and dimming, which could affect crop yields. That all of those are, uh, effects are still being studied. Um, the risks that I look at are the social side effects. Um, and these might include uh, the potential for international conflict where countries are in a disagreement over how, they, how, how the geoengineering is done or even what the global thermostat is set at. Um, another big risk socially is that that because geoengineering is so um, relatively cheap and also relatively effective, it has high leverage in the climate, it could be tempting to lower our emissions um, mitigation goals in favor of just relying on solar geoengineering. And that would be a mistake because the only way to solve climate change in the long term is to lower our emissions to net zero and below. Related to that is, is a risk that we can become dependent on it. And if we become dependent on this technology, there's a risk. If it ever should stop, something called a termination shock would happen, where temperatures would go back to where they were, um, had we not done geoengineering in the first place. So, in our research, we look at at this this complete picture of both of all the benefits of of solar geoengineering paired with all the risks of solar geoengineering. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a thank you for for that detail. Uh, I do think that you've laid out a number of kind of the physical science questions and unknowns, um, and also, you know, referenced some of the the social science questions and unknowns, uh, which is actually the focus of our conversation today, which is great. So yeah, and we've had a few conversations about solar geoengineering here on Resources Radio, but I'm, I'm very grateful for the chance to talk about this intersection of uh, SRM and social science research in particular. So maybe I can ask you why to, just to give us a little bit more context about why you and your, your co-leads in this work have really focused on that particular intersection in kind of recent years.
1: Yeah, um, in this work, I, I'm really motivated by a, a report that came out almost 15 years ago from the UK's uh, Royal Society, society which is the equivalent of the, the which is the UK's National Academy of Sciences. And in that report, they stated that, in effect, that you know, despite all of the questions surrounding the climatic effects of solar geoengineering, as well as the engineering challenges, um, they concluded that the I'll read the quote here: the acceptability of geoengineering will be determined as much by societal, legal, and political issues as by the scientific and technical factors. And that, that really motivates me because I go to, to conferences, uh, I, both types of conferences, where you know it's primarily natural scientists, and, uh, and the question always arises, well, how would this ever be managed? Um, and then on the flip side, you go to a, a conference with primarily social scientists, and the question is, well, are we understanding this this technology correctly? So both sides need to need to cooperate. But I'm exclusively working on the social science questions related to geoengineering. Um, in terms of our motivation uh, with the RFF project, um, I see a, a three large sets of social science questions that could that really, in my mind, should receive priority over the next decade. Uh, first, could SRM be done in a way that avoids what's called the moral hazard risk, which I alluded to earlier, which is this idea that we lower our motivation to continue mitigating down to net zero and below Uh, because geoengineering is so um, effective and relatively cheap compared to mitigation. If we ever decided to deploy geoengineering, could we do it in a way that also, also increases our mitigation efforts, knowing that that's the only way to solve climate change in the long term? Um, moral hazard risk is is a huge um, question that's that's outstanding that people are working on right now. The second large social science question is: Could solar geoengineering be done in a way that's that's fair? Um, by that I mean, it doesn't cause significant harm to particular regions of the world? And if there is harm done to regions of the world, can we help those areas become whole again? Or are there mechanisms for compensation? Um, are the mechanisms for for um, decision making on that? In other words, um, you can imagine a, a representative group of, of representatives for the globe and, and asks, you know, knowing that that this might help uh, climate change, uh, but there's also this smaller risk that it could uh, result in damaging precipitation effects for your particular region. Would you still sign on to it? So that gets into the governance question of what, how I see it is how to make decisions on geoengineering in a democratic and representative way. Um, decisions both to deploy, if we ever came to that point, and also decisions on when to, when to stop or decisions on how to alter the program as needed. Um, finally, uh, a large social science research question, yeah, and related to this, is could it ever be deployed cooperatively in a way that doesn't result in international conflict? We really want to avoid too bad outcomes uh, that people are researching one is is uh, a unilateral deployment by some single country that affects the climate for the entire globe. Um, it's motivated by what's called the free driver incentive, where where again it's so cheap and relatively straightforward to to embark in this technology that um, we may many countries may be incentivized to go ahead. And related to that is is a, a related problem of we want to avoid a situation where multiple countries are. Um, doing engaging in sort of a patchwork quilt of different geoengineering interventions with no coordination, um, it, it's really imperative that if this if this technology were ever used globally, it needs to be done in a cooperative way, um, not to cause um, international strife.
0: Right, right. Uh, yeah, you have done a fantastic job once again laying out kind of what that social science research agenda should should cover. So I appreciate that. And I guess I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak a little bit about how you and your colleagues have actually been working to drive that research agenda forward in this space. So can you say a little bit more about the work that you've been doing to sort of uh, work towards answers to some of those critical questions?
1: Yeah. So the project began uh, with with Resources for the Future in 2020. And and Kristen, you were a vital part of that early work uh, with the what was called the SRM Transatlantic Dialogue, uh, where we had a series of meetings uh, during COVID to, uh, among experts both in North America and Europe, uh, to try to uh, develop a set of social science research questions to address for solar geoengineering. That effort resulted in an article in Science, which I, I think would be—I would encourage your, your readers to take a look at, and I think it'll be posted with the podcast. Um, that that really. Uh, Outlined our conclusions um, and really a set of goals for social science research going forward. Um, we hope that contributed to um, a side note uh, the this recent um, uh, report from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, which also set forth a set of social science research questions as well as natural science questions that can be that could be addressed with a research program. So the project continues um, and it, and the goals are are. are of the of the project is basically to better understand the risks the potential benefits and the societal implications of this technology um, as a possible approach to help reduce risk again alongside more aggressive mitigation and necessary adaptation um, so the the next step in this uh, was was to uh, issue a competitive solicitation for sponsored research to uh, look at some of the questions that we we raised. Um, we really wanted to get a wide variety of submissions, and we received um, twenty outstanding applications from all over the globe, uh, with researchers from fourteen countries and, and from six countries in the global south, um, and representing a wide variety of uh, of uh, social science fields. So we received, um, and we we received uh, applications looking at you know from the fields of economics, political science, behavioral science, science policy. And different methods uh, ranging from uh, integrated assessment and game theoretic modeling, survey administration, and con- to conceptual and mental modeling. Um, and we were happy to choose uh, the the best eight submissions of those. Um, and now after a couple of author workshops, we're happy to have released the, the final set of eight working papers, which are now in the process of being published in scientific journals.
0: hmm that is fantastic, and I will also note that those the kind of working version of those eight papers are uh, all available on the RFF website. So I will encourage folks to take a look at those. But maybe you can talk in just a little bit more detail about those uh, those eight papers funded via the the RFF Solar Geoengineering Project. And uh, I know that's a lot to cover. You know, there's a lot of depth in those eight papers. So maybe just share some of the kind of themes about the papers. Maybe a highlight, um, one or two examples of findings. But really, hearing about those themes would be fantastic.
1: Yeah, uh, happy to summarize some of the themes. So they really, the eight papers really are, are great in pushing our understanding of uh, the social science around geoengineering, pushing that, that forward. Um, in a broad sense, the themes are familiar, but but the papers really provide a set of supporting perspectives. Uh, in reading the, the, the eight final papers, uh, three themes emerged. The first is that uh, SRM it could be a profoundly beneficial part of an overall climate change policy portfolio. Again, that also includes mitigation, carbon dioxide removal, adaptation. Um, we really need to talk, look at the, at the benefits of geoengineering and the risks in the risk risk trade off framework. Um, I'd refer the, the listeners to uh, one example from uh, a paper led by uh, Anthony Harding and also with David Keith, Wang Cheng Yang, and Gabriel Vecchi. They looked at the mortality risks and benefits. Uh, so, the t- paper's impact of solar geoengineering on temperature attributable mortality. And what they find is that uh, solar geoengineering creates a, a health hazard risk from new particulates, changes in ozone, changes in ultraviolet um, exposure. However, it also creates a, a huge benefit in terms of avoided mortality due to um, lowered frequency and intensity of heat waves. And they find that that benefit from um, from heat mortality is, is 10, possibly even 100 times greater than the risks of the, that geoengineering. Um, that's just one example of a larger risk assessment that needs to be done for, for geoengineering. Uh, a second theme from the papers, and it comes out in several of the, of the works, is that uh, any deployment or research into SRM will be strongly influenced by societal, political, and personal attitudes on risk, uh, you know, are, how how do you view risk of a new technology versus versus risk in climate change? Is be determined by trust in this new emerging technology. Do you tend to, to trust the te- new technology and how it's how it's managed? And then uh, your preferred level of cooling or, and your views on how it might play out. And so uh, we've got a a couple of uh, p- uh, papers looking at the at the mental modeling and, and the risk perception surrounding geoengineering. Uh, those led by Dale Rothman and also by Brian Beckage, and then we also have a couple of papers um, led by researchers from the Global South. Um, those by Govinda Sami Bala and also Atar Hussein, who, uh, on the latter two, surveyed uh, both um, researchers and larger groups of people on their attitudes for on solar geoengineering. And a lot of the uh, the survey uh, results from their their papers show that there's actually a, A fairly strong openness to geoengineering, Um, and it's kind of contributes to this larger set of of literature that 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 might explore this idea that that um, it might be—it's not certain—we don't know, but it might be the case that the global south might be more amenable to geoengineering approaches, especially because of the fact that the global south is more vulnerable to climate change. And then a final. Theme I, from our from the papers is that our added, you know how geoengineering ever plays out will be will be influenced strongly by the perceptions and actions of others and I'm, and here thinking of the primary actor being the nation state um, so that you can think of it in terms of game theoretic modeling where you know at first countries are having a hard time cooperating uh, in in getting a global mitigation regime. Uh, how can that, that cooperation be enhanced and then if there's this new technology of geoengineering, how does that affect the cooperation on mitigation? Ideally if geoengineering ever were to be deployed, you'd want to have stronger cooperation on mitigation and also uh, cooperation on, on some sort of um, some sort of geoengineering. And so papers led by Dave McAvoy look at that at how it affect how a geoengineering would affect uh, international environmental agreements. There's also the question of, of learning. Um, how how does an actor change its uh, decisions when it learns how effective geoengineering is or is not? Um, and that's a, a really fascinating paper that, that Felix Meyer and Christian Traeger uh, developed looking at uncertainty and, and learning for geoengineering's effectiveness. And then finally, uh, Juan Moreno Cruz and also Anthony Harding looked at, at how countries might... Um, use international diplomatic methods to to um, coerce or encourage other countries to you know to, to join their their point of view on geoengineering versus mitigation uh, so there's a lot of strategic behavior that's going to be occurring um, and that's that's a lot of um, the, again it goes back to the main question of how could this be done cooperatively and how could this be done in a way that uh, does not dissuade us from mitigating even more than we are now
0: Hmm. yeah that is a fascinating set of topics and i will say as you were as you were describing particularly that last section on kind of cooperative approaches I, i'm an optimist by nature but in this case i'm thinking back to the number of times that we've tried cooperative approaches related to climate change before and they're they're fraught they're not straightforward and it seems like it's you know very halting slow progress and so i can imagine that that cornerstone of trust and sort of building trust in the technology building trust in the uh the organizations that are governing the management of that technology is a really, really critical piece of the puzzle. Um, So yeah, that's that's a really, those are some great insights about how all of these pieces need to fit together. Uh, So just maybe just one other kind of um, social science question that I wanted to ask you about. And some of our listeners may recall that we actually aired an episode a few weeks ago here on Resources Radio with uh, Dr. Suchi Talati, and that was really focused on how to ensure inclusion of multiple multiple stakeholder voices in any of these very complex decision-making processes related to solar geoengineering. So um, I guess I just wanted to ask how you think about that in relation to the work that, that you all have been funding.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a crucial question. And I, I really applaud uh, Shushi's work on that in that area, developing global capacity uh, for addressing these issues. Um, there's also the work of, uh, of the Degrees Modeling Fund, uh, run by Andy Parker who's been working for a long time on getting um, researchers from the Global South involved in uh, in, in studying geoengineering and, and involved in these international conferences. Um, climate change is a global problem, obviously, and it will require a range of voices, uh, especially on geoengineering, uh, if we're ever to to discuss the possibility of, of uh, using this technology. Um, again, I would go back to to the, I guess you know it's it's a sort of a rousing approach. Would a would a representative country um, sign on to some SRM deployment knowing the risks? And we want to we want to have a situation where most countries of the world would be um, signing on to this, knowing that that the the work has been done, that they've been involved in the process, that that they have a a voice in the decision making around it. Um, I guess finally there's been a lot of work done on uh from a group called uh, the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative which has been trying to get this issue on the international uh, diplomatic agenda at the UN and then eventually at the um at the conference of parties to the UNFCCC that's the first step really that's a key step that I see that we need to get this issue onto international agendas so that people start start really acknowledging that um we need to start talking about this now uh, before we we um, surpass 1.5 degrees of warming.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great highlight of sort of one next step that I think you all have identified. So So let's talk a little bit about the next steps, maybe particularly in the work of the Solar Geoengineering Project or other related efforts you have around sort of what needs to happen next when it comes to the social science research agenda or more broadly in terms of getting solar geoengineering into the international dialogue.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about a, an event that we're hosting with RFF um, at the end of September, September 28th and 29th, and it's a public event in Washington D.C. I'd, I'd encourage your listeners to uh, check out the the link and uh, and to consider signing up in person or or online. Uh, it's the it's a, a public facing uh, synopsis of social science research as it stands now, and we're hoping to involve uh, get the audience of a lot of um, people who work on climate change, but but may be new to geoengineering, or uh, you know, D- DC-based policymakers um, and and environmental NGO advocates who've been you know spending their lives on climate change and really may have questions about geoengineering. Um, so over a series of panels over a day and a half, we'll be covering some of the, these cutting edge issues. So we'll be looking at the the, the benefits and risks, uh, the moral hazard risks specifically. Uh, possible, quote, optimal deployment scenarios that economists or modelers might use, and then the more non-optimal or possibly more politically realistic scenarios that, that political scientists or others might might investigate. Uh, uh, we'll have a panel on research capacity building, and then finally a, a panel on, on looking at a research agenda for the next 10 years. Um, so I think it would be a great event in, in the month. Um,
0: yeah, great overview for a lot of people. Great, lot to chew on in that one, I'm sure. So, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I I'm involved in a, a few other projects, but I guess I'll just highlight one. A, a second one. Um, it's a one funded by the National Science Foundation, and run with colleagues from the uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, along with uh, fellow investigators from both uh, Louisiana State and Arizona State Universities, and we're looking at at how to model. How different climate interventions so we're calling it there a climate intervention but it so that would include both solar geoengineering as well as uh carbon dioxide removal but basically different interventions how they might help us to to uh either avoid one point five or at least uh, uh, bring us back down to a world where we're we're closer to one point five degrees of warming um, and the interesting point is that a lot of these geoengineering proposals, uh people think they could happen fairly quickly and cheaply. And they they could, but they still might take a a decade or two or even longer to really ramp up. And it just uh reminds us that that um even if we do have these new possible approaches, they're not a solution to the to the problem of climate change, which is really again mitigating lowering our emissions down to net zero and below.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tyler, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate um, your introducing us to these new research papers, obviously giving us a lot of context about the intersection of social science with solar geoengineering or with SRM. And yeah, I um, I encourage our listeners to check out the papers if they're so inclined and definitely check out that public event, which I do think is going to be a really nice synthesis of all the work that the team has been doing and that Tyler has been so critical in. So with that, let me let me close with our regular feature called Top of the Stack, and I'd love to ask you to recommend some some good content for our listeners. It can be on this subject or it can be more broad. But Tyler, what's on the top of your stack?
1: Yeah, a, a couple of books came to mind, um, and oddly, they're not focused on geoengineering, but on on climate change. And the, the best book I've read on, on in the past couple of years about climate change is one your listeners are probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, called the uninhabitable earth life after warming by david wallace wells um it came out a couple of years ago um and it's just a great um highly readable overview of the plethora of climate change impacts and risks that we're set um set to face um and the point i draw from it often is is just um that uh you know this 1.5 degree international goal is is a is somewhat politically determined but um it the point Made is that you know 1.4 degrees of warming will be a lot worse than 1.3, which is a lot worse than 1.2, and it provides motivation for me at least for when we might eventually cross 1.5 degrees of warming, that we still have a fight on our hands, that that we st- it's still worth us to to get to 1.6 as opposed to 1.7. It's it's 1.7 will be much better than 1.8 degrees of warming. It really provides motivation on my end. Um. A second recommendation, book recommendation is a little bit more specialized uh, and it brings, comes back to my earlier career in international security. It's called Climate Change and the Nation State uh, The Case for Nationalism in a Warming World by Anatole Levin. Um, and he makes the argument there, that um, there's really no way to, to fully address climate change without strong national level leadership. And it's a bit um, contrarian in that it goes against the political right which might be more resistant to state intervention in our economies. Um, and it also goes against the political left, which which may prefer that civil society and political movements take the lead, um, both of which are, are crucial in this effort. But he makes a good case that, that it's still the nation state that um, is making decisions and on, on large-scale climate changes, and, um, and it's still the true decision makers, at, the, at least at the UN level. Um, so... Uh, And then I'd encourage the listeners to look at the other links to, to our project, as well as the upcoming event.
0: Great. Great. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you again for talking to me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.